It's good to be back with you this morning, having been out for a couple of weeks on a staycation. You know what a staycation is? That's when you take all the money that you would normally spend on hotels and, and uh, restaurants and so forth, and you uh, spend it at Home Depot on, uh, on honeydews. That's called a staycation. Uh, but it's okay. It's, uh, it's a good thing. My list used to be like that, and then it went like this, and, and it's like this again. So, <laughs> Cal said, you did such a good job. There's these things that I've been wanting to add, you know. <laughs> so, uh, on Monday of this past week, I received an email early Monday morning giving me news that uh, my friend Ernie Withrow, that Art uh, referred to, had passed away the prior day on Sunday, so a week ago today. He was uh, going to be 72 years old, and uh, he was a faithful man of God, had pastored uh, for close to 50 years, and he was uh, preparing, actually, to, uh, to preach and, uh, and had a heart attack, a massive heart attack, and he went to be in the presence of the Lord, so... It'll be a, a real ministry of us to his family and their church family to be able to host that memorial service uh, for them. There'll be many, many more people here than could possibly fit in the building of the church that he formerly pastored out in Riverside. But just sort of thinking about that, you know, that's sort of the shocking kind of news on a Monday morning. You don't really expect that sort of thing. And and uh, just caused me to sort of reflect all week long about the brevity of life and how we don't really know uh, the future. We don't know what's going to happen really to any of us. And it, and it began to make me think uh, uh, about a life cycle, if I can say it that way. You know, we're, we're born into this world and we're, we're entirely dependent when we come into the world. Isn't that true? Just this little package that's, that's entirely dependent upon mom primarily and then uh, others, to be sure, uh, as, as they enter into life. And, and as the child begins to grow, they begin to develop a measure of independence. And, you know, you sort of go through the me-do-it stage. And, and, um, and then they move into the elementary school years and into junior high and even into high school. And, and there's sort of a growing sense of independence. And it sometimes creates tensions in a home where where there's this dependence and independence and they're trying to operate side by side and mom and dad and the kids are trying to figure out how does that all work. And, and, but there's the growing sense of independence. We move into young adulthood and into the adult years and, and you move into what we call independence. We're, we're an independent uh, individual. And that lasts for you know, a long time, 40 years, 50 years of this sort of illusion of independence. And then the aging process catches up. And, and it's sort of like the whole cycle kind of runs in reverse, doesn't it? You begin to not feel so good, and, and you don't have the vitality that you once had, and, and you just begin to slow down. And, and, you know, sort of the amazing thing is that if you live long enough, if God grants you a long enough life, it, it's, it, it's like you go back towards childhood and it turns out your own children begin to take care of you the way you once took care of them. It's just a really interesting sort of cycle of life. And you know, it's, it's easy to be deceived. 
It's easy to be deceived in, in the midst of that cycle when we, when we think we're really, really independent. You know, it says in, in Proverbs chapter 20 and, and verse 29 that the glory of young men is their strength. You know, they're, they're, um, they've got all this vigor, all of this vitality, and, and they glory in it. And, and, they, and they, they live as if they're going to live forever. They really think little of the future. And we pick on young men. It's true at young women at some level as well, of course. But, but that sense in which I don't need anybody, I don't need any help, I've got it wired, life is good, I, you know, I'm, I'm doing fine. But the Bible says that's, that's silly. That's ridiculous. That's a, that's a misperception of reality. James says in James chapter 4 and, and verse 14 that, that you, your life is like a vapor, James says. You're like the little steam cloud above a cup of coffee. You know, you, you last about that long. When you're in the middle of it, you think, oh, I'm going to live forever. I don't need any help. I'm going to live forever. I'm strong. But James says, don't be silly. You're just a vapor, here and gone. So don't deceive yourself in thinking that, that somehow you're independent of your Creator. And that's really what I want to speak with you about this morning. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6 and verse 11. We're returning this morning back to the Lord's Prayer as we continue our verse-by-verse exposition of Matthew's gospel, and I really appreciate Pastor Vince filling in for me for a a couple of weeks and and, uh, rolling the ball forward, and uh, he did such a good job on on, uh, this one verse that I gave him that next time I might entrust him with two. (laughs) Faithful in little, faithful in much. No, he really did a fine job. I, I listened uh, to one of the sermons and read the notes on the other, and, and so I did a great job. But we're back here in this prayer, and in particular, we're looking at, at verse 11, verse 11, and, and what Jesus has to say ab- about our relationship, the relationship between food and prayer, food and, and prayer. And, and we have said, and this is just by way of reminder to sort of get you back in the, in the, in the, um, the mindset here, that, that this is a model prayer that Jesus is giving here. This is not something that necessarily has to be repeated verbatim or prayed verbatim. But this is kind of a model prayer, and, and it's a model prayer that's, that's given to the disciples in order that they might, might understand the, the issues that, that ought to occupy them in the time until Messiah's kingdom is established. We've noted uh, more than one time that, that th- this, these, these prayer requests are, are, are given in a present tense uh, form, which just means that this, these are to be ongoing, these are to be regular, these are to be continual concerns for the believers and the believing community. We've noted the prayer breaks down into six Petitions and the two, the six position, uh, petitions can be broken into two groups, right? The, and the first group covers uh, verses uh, nine and ten, and it and it really concerns our desire as a disciple, as a follower of Jesus Christ, to, to see the glory of God on display throughout the earth. 
You notice at the end of verse 10, on earth as it is in heaven. That, that controls really all that proceeds there. And so specifically, Jesus said, we're to, to concern ourselves when we pray with God's name, with God's kingdom, and with God's will. And we're, we're asking God to take action, to establish his kingdom here on earth, Messiah's kingdom, to bring about the righteousness long foretold by the prophets and for which in our heart of hearts we desperately long to see. Well, beginning in verse 11, we move to the, to the second grouping. The second grouping in verses 11 through 15. And that concerns sort of our needs as a disciple living in the, in the age prior to Messiah's kingdom coming. So living in this age, waiting upon the age to come. And what it is that should concern us. Specifically, God's grace for us. God's grace to guard us. And so Jesus says, concern yourself with these things. Verse 11, God's daily provision for you. Concern yourself with that. Verses 12, and then leaping over to verses 14 and 15, is a request for divine pardon. So it's daily provision in verse 11. It's divine pardon, verses 12, 14, and 15. And then finally, divine protection Verse 13. So these are the requests that are to sort of occupy us in, the, in this present age as we wait for the age to come. We're praying for the kingdom to come, and in the meantime, these other things should occupy our prayer life. Now, the whole, the whole prayer is, is phrased in the plural. Again, we've noted this before. Our Father, give us this day. Forgive us our debts. Do not lead us into temptation. So this is a corporate prayer. This is the kind of prayer that the people of God should should concern themselves with when they gather together corporately as the family of God to pray. This is what a prayer meeting should offer concern itself with. Not exclusively, but it definitely should be a focus of what a corporate prayer meeting is all about. It's for the community of believers. But of course it goes beyond that. If it's good for the community, it's certainly good for the individuals who make up that community. So it's, it's very legitimate to uh, have these requests can, uh, occupy your personal times of private prayer and devotion. Let's read it. Picking it up in verse 9. Pray then in this way. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. This morning I want to zero in on verse 11. Give us this day our daily bread. We're going to look at this fourth petition together. And as, and as we do, we're looking at it so that we might pray and we might prioritize our lives in accordance with this 
divine perspective. Give us this day our daily bread. Now, this expression, our daily bread, is, is kind of an interesting expression. It's based on a, in a very obscure Greek adjective that, that the commentators scratch their heads to try to, to, to try to come up with an English rendering for. And so if you look perhaps in the margin of your New American Standard Bible, you might see an alternative translation which is listed as our bread for tomorrow, our bread for tomorrow. And that's a legitimate possibility for this particular adjective. It also can be translated our bread for the present day. So it could be our bread for tomorrow or our bread for the present day. Well, how do you know which is which? Well, the answer, I think, is is as simple as this. It depends when when you're expressing yourself in this prayer. If you're praying this prayer towards the end of the day, then you would be praying for your bread for tomorrow because that's the next meal that you're about to have. If you're praying this prayer in the beginning part of the day, then you're praying for your bread for the present day. So the adjective is flexible. The point is that you are, that you are praying, you are praying because you are aware of your, of your daily need for God to provide. And thus, as most English translations give it to you, our daily bread. It's a good translation, our daily bread. The point of the the command here is that we are to pray for the immediate day-to-day necessities of life as opposed to the long-term luxuries of life. We're to concern ourselves with the day-to-day needs, not the long-term needs. Day-to-day. We're to live in that kind of awareness of who God is and who we are that we come to Him regularly, morning, evening, and we're always concerned about that reality that, God, you know what? If you don't provide this next meal, we're not going to get one. We're not going to get one. Now, that's hard in our culture, isn't it? There's probably few places in the New Testament in which we are so culturally disconnected. The very thought about, give us this day our daily bread, doesn't really register with most of us. In fact, I'm very confident to say it doesn't register with any of us. That we do not live in a place in which that if we don't pray and God doesn't provide and we, we don't sense it that way, there's no food for the next meal. Now, you, you know, you may, be, um, you may be like the typical teenager which, you know, opens the refrigerator door and just <laughs> nothing to eat, you know, and closes it again, uh, even though the place is completely stocked with food, right? But... It might require you to, like, move something or, you know, whatever. <laughs> but, I mean, we, we live with, with an abundance. We live with an abundance. E- even those among us who, who are economically challenged, we live with an abundance. So it's really, really, really hard to, to try to get your arms around this and say, are you, are you serious? Jesus, of all the things that you want us to pray for, why this? Or was this just a prayer for them back then, but we have progressed, and, and so we can lay that prayer request aside and leave it in the, in the past? 
Well, you know the answer to that, right? The Word of God is, is uh, eminently important for every person in every age. And so, no, we can't leave this thing behind. But, you know, uh, it's not, uh, we live in a unique time in human history, a unique time of prosperity. Most of the world doesn't live with the prosperity that you and I enjoy and have taken uh, for granted, really. Most of the world lives with the expression hand-to-mouth, right? What they, what they gather with their hand goes directly to their mouth. We don't tend to live that way. Certainly, at the time that Jesus spoke this, that was the prevailing cultural norm. The average worker had to be paid at the end of every day because they needed that money to procure their food for that day or the next. And so it was essential that, that if you employed a worker that you, you give them their wages at the end of the day. To withhold their wages from them was considered a, a tremendous act of, of unrighteousness. But here we live, the 21st century, right? The year's 2012. And what's our biggest problem? It's not malnutrition. Our biggest problem is an overabundance. An overabundance. I did a little uh, online research, and here it is for what it's worth. The uh, World Health Organization, right, uh, WHO, they recommend a minimum of about 1,400 calories per day, 1,400 calories per day for the average adult uh, who is not involved in hard labor. So about 1,400 a day apparently sustains, according to, to the WHO, sustains a person not involved in hard labor. By comparison, uh, a professional bike rider, you know, like the Tour de France or something like that, or a, or a professional swimmer, they need to consume about 7,000 calories a day in order to keep from losing weight. So you just kind of get an idea of, of the difference that's involved when one is heavily exercising. Now, according to the USDA's Economic Research Service, the average American consumes about 3,600 calories per day. Okay, 1,400 to maintain, 3,600 is the average consumption, according to the USDA, in America today. And that's up, by the way, from a prior you know, prior decades. Now, the average in Europe now is a little lower. It's about uh, just under 3,400 calories per day. And then it, you know, as you, as you move out from first world to second world to third world, as you would imagine, it certainly drops. Now, I read a little further here, and they, they say these caloric numbers are, eh, they're a little difficult to nail down because they, they're based on the measurement of, of the aggregate food supply or the amount of food available in a country based on production and export numbers. And uh, so well, many experts believe that the 3,600 number, you know, is not really true. Uh, because, and you should deduct about 1,000 calories from all the world's numbers because food is lost due to spoilage and cooking shrinkage and other factors. So if that's true, then... You take 1,000 off, so we're at 2,600 calories on average in the U.S. What that does, though, is it puts, the, puts countries like Africa at about 1,100. Now, I found another, another study done by the uh, Louisiana State University. I believe it was done in 2009. 
They concluded that a large portion of the world's population consume only 900 calories per day. So if that's true, if it's 900, if it's 1,100, it's below maintenance. It's below maintenance levels. So I think it is fair to say that the majority of the world lives hand-to-mouth. The majority of the world can identify very closely with the need for, for close and continual prayer that God would supply their needs. But what about you and me? What do we do with this Scripture? How do we, how do we hear the Word of God when we live with such abundance? We live in such prosperity. We, we go home and our refrigerators and our cabinets and our you know, long-term food storages have enough to carry us for a good long time. How do we hear the Word of God? It's difficult. Look again at that verse. Jesus says, give us this day our daily bread. Give us. The verb give, it, it, it recognizes that the, that the food that we are going to consume, and we need to get a hold of this idea, the food that we're going to uh, consume is not the result of our unaided effort. Not the result of our unaided effort, but is a gift from God. If the Word of God is true, and it is, then even when we have a, a pantry full of food, we need to, we need to understand that it's there as a gift from God. It came to us as a gift of God. Now what that means is, I don't provide for my family. God does. And gentlemen, that, that can be a, a really revolutionary idea to get a hold of. Is that you do not provide for your family. God provides for your family. Now, he, he provides for them through you, to be sure. And the Bible is, is very clear that, that the means by which God generally supplies food for His people is by working. You have to work for it. Right? God has created work as a good thing, and it's, the, and it's the means by which we receive our food. And, and the Proverbs are loaded with those kinds of statements, but I'm not going to even turn there with you this morning. I intended to, but I won't. You can go and do that on your own. Lots of statements about working hard and those that don't suffer poverty. But we need to disconnect the idea in our mind that, that essentially it is our hard work. It is by the strength of our right arm that our cupboards are full. We need to remember God provides God is the one who gives what we need. And thus we voice this prayer, Oh God, give us today what we need to sustain us today. God may provide more than that for you. He may, he may graciously decide to, to lavish an abundance upon you. But you must never lose sight of the reality that it comes from Him. That it comes from Him. Whether it's in small increments or large, it comes from Him. 
And if you cannot remember that, and you become forgetful, then you will fall into the travesty of Israel. I think the best illustration, really, of the principle that underlies this this prayer request is to go back to the Old Testament and to think through the provision of manna. The provision of manna. So I'm going to take you back there. I'm going to take you back into the Old Testament to Exodus chapter 16. So let's go back to Exodus 16. And let's take a look at manna. Exodus 16 and verse 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them, whether or not they will walk in my instruction. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the sons of Israel, At evening you will know that the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt. Flip ahead to a chapter, same chapter, but verse 12 and following. Middle of verse 12. In the morning you shall be filled with bread, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. So it came about in the evening, the quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the layer of dew evaporated, behold, on the surface of the wilderness there was a fine flake-like thing, fine as the frost on the ground. When the sons of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? By the way, that's what the word manna means. What is it? Uh, I'm not kidding you. That's exactly what the word means. What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it every man as much as he should eat. You shall take an omer apiece according to the number of the persons each of you has in his tent. Now an omer is, uh, best we can tell, is about three and a half liters dry measure. Okay? The sons of Israel, verse 17, did so and gathered much and some little. When they measured it with an omer, he who gathered much had no excess and he who gathered little had no lack. Every man gathered as much as he should eat. Moses said to them, Let no man leave any of it until morning. But they did not listen to Moses and left some part of it until morning, and it bred worms and became foul, and Moses was angry with them. They gathered it morning by morning, every man as much as he should eat, but when the sun grew hot, it would melt. Manna. What is it? We don't know. It was some supernatural means by which God supplied to His people for their 40 years of their wilderness wanderings the the raw material, the flour, as it were, that they would make their bread from. And He supplied it to them day by day. You had to go out every day and work in order to gather in what God had supplied. That's That's a very good picture, by the way, of the relationship between work and God's supply. God supplies, you have to work to gather. Now, why did God give them this manna? Why did He choose to to do this for them? 
The purpose of it was simply this, to, to teach them to obey him because it was through obedience to him that they would then inherit the promised land. So the gift of the manna was for them to learn dependence and to learn obedience to God. We see that over in Deuteronomy. So go ahead and turn to the right, to Deuteronomy 8. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 16 and following. Deuteronomy 8 and 16. Deuteronomy 8.16, In the wilderness he fed you manna, which your fathers did not know. This, by the way, is written at the end of the wilderness wandering, so he's looking back, okay? Which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and that he might test you to do good for you in the end. That little clause, to do good for you in the end, is is the reference to bringing them into the promised land. Otherwise, verse 7, the caution, you may say in your heart, my power and the strength of my hand made me this wealth. But you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who is giving you power to make wealth, that he may confirm his covenant which he swore to your fathers as it is this day. Manna is to teach them they are dependent upon God. It is to teach them to be obedient to the word of God. Because it is through dependence upon God and obedience to the Word of God that His ancient people would inherit the promise of God. Beloved, not much has changed. That's still true today for you and for me. It is by dependence upon God, it is by obedience to the Word of God that we inherit the promise that He has given to us. Notice now, that Jesus says, and I'm going to turn you back to, uh, to Matthew 11, or not 11, to uh, Matthew chapter 6, verse 11. That's a little better. Notice Jesus says, give us this day our daily bread. Now that, maybe his disciples were poor at the time, but they're not all poor, and they won't always be poor. Yet this prayer request remains. Whether we're well off or not so well off, we're to continue to pray this way because we're continue to, we are to continue to remember that we're, that we're daily in need of God's provision. It's ultimately provided by God. There, are da- there is danger in abundance. Danger in abundance. When, when Israel became filled with the, with, the, with the produce of the promised land, they forgot their God. They became self-satisfied. They said that, that it is by the strength of my right arm that I have accumulated such wealth. You can check it out on your own, by the way. Deuteronomy 31, verses 20 and 21 Deuteronomy 32, verse 15, Song of Moses, given to them to remind them later, speaks of these very things. Abundance creates danger. Abundance creates danger. Little words of Agar. How would you like to have that for a last name, or first name, huh? That would be really hard for your mother to call you, don't you think? 
Uh, Proverbs chapter 30, verse 7. Two things I ask of you before you refuse, and excuse me, try it again. Two things I ask of you, do not refuse me before I die. Keep deception and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion, that I will not be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or that I may not be in want and steal and profane the name of my God. It's an interesting thought. God, don't make me poor and don't make me rich because there's danger in both. The temptations are are different, but there's danger in both. We're not in danger of being poor. We are in danger of being rich and forgetting our God. Paul says in Philippians chapter 4, verses 11 and following, he says, I have, I have learned the secret of contentment. I've learned the secret of, of having an abundance, and I've, and I've learned the secret of being in want. It's always stuck out to me when he says, I've learned the secret, because if something's a secret, what does that mean? By definition, that means not very many people know about it. Contentment is, is elusive. Paul says, I've figured it out. I've learned the secret. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The context is living with contentment. That's the all things that Paul's talking about. He doesn't fall into the ditch of abundance, the danger of abundance. Give us this day our daily bread. You know, if if we're going to pray that way, then we need to think that way. We need, to, we need to think rightly so we can pray rightly. The only way to do that is to, is to constantly remind each other of the reality of our dependence upon God. See, I need you. I, I need you to, to remind me how dependent upon God I really am. And you need me to do the same for you. Because I've got, a, I've got this gigantic you know, flaw in my character called pride. I know that most of you don't have that problem, but I do. And so I can get caught up in thinking that, that, that I can live without God. No, I would never voice such heresy. I'm far too orthodox for that. But I might live that way. I might live like that. I'd cover it up with pious expressions, but I might well live like that. I need you. I need you to remind me. I need you speaking into my life, and I need to speak into your life. That I'm dependent upon God, and and you're dependent on God too. You know what? You're just a vapor. You're just a vapor. You're not independent. You're not independent at all. The food that you're going to have for lunch today You're entirely dependent upon God to provide it. By the way, that's why we pray and thank God for the meals that we eat, isn't it? It's at least an attempt to try to recognize that reality. I remember about 19 years ago, 
And uh, Carol and I were, were deeply struggling because the, um, the elders had asked me to leave Bank of America to join the pastoral staff here at Foothill Bible Church. And uh, I, I desperately wanted to do that. There was nothing I wanted to do more than that. I totally identify with what Tom was saying earlier. But there was still a struggle that was going on in our hearts for both of us. And the struggle was over leaving the, the security and certainty of a job with Bank of America to come to the uncertainty of a job at Foothill Bible Church. And, we, and we, we were just, it took us a while for the gospel to sort of um, wash our brains <laughs> So that we could begin to think rightly and come to the understanding that a, that a job working at Bank of America was no more secure than a job working at Foothill Bible Church. One is not more secure than the other at all because they are both entirely dependent upon who? God. God. But see, the illusion is that one was strong and solid and you know, was going to provide for our future and the other was uncertain and dangerous. Foolish thinking. Let me do this as we try to make some application out of this. Let me give you some suggestions on, on how we can remind one another about our daily dependence on God. Okay? How can we remind one another? To live dependently in an independent world. All right, here's a couple. Number one, you knew I was going to start with this. I always do. Regular intake of the Word of God. I mean, there's no evading this. Okay? Read your Bible. Read your Bible personally. Read our Bibles corporately. Read our Bibles one with another. Because that's, that's where God speaks to His people through His Word. Let me just read this to you. Deuteronomy chapter 8. If you're really fast, you can turn. But if you're slow, I'll be gone by the time you get there. Deuteronomy 8, verses 2 and 3. You shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years that He might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep His commandments or not. He humbled you and let you be hungry. He fed you with manna which your father, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know. Why? That he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Interesting, huh? The first way to... to to help one another to live with dependence in an independent world is to take the Scriptures in together. To let the Word of God wash our hearts, to, to be reminded of God's sovereignty over us. The whole vapor over the cup of coffee thing. Two, attend funeral services. Attend funeral services. Meditate. Discuss with your family and your friends the, the reality of the brevity of life. Remember, life is short. Life is short, and even the wealthy cannot cheat death. 
Moses says in Psalm 90, verse 10, As for the days of our life, they contain 70 years, or if due to strength, 80 years. Yet their pride is but labor and sorrow, for soon it is gone and we fly away. Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes chapter 7 and verse 2, It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting, because that is the end of every man, and the living takes it to heart. Go to funerals. Parents, take your children to funerals. Speak to them about the reality that this life is very, very short and all of us someday will be there. Three, embrace adversity. Embrace adversity. Think of adversity as as God's loving reminder that it is foolish to try to live in this age as if we were in the age to come. See, we live in America. We're we're rich. And we can can sort of keep up this charade for for a long time that, that the kingdom is sort of half here. The kingdom is not here. This world is messed up. The news tells us, right, from up in Colorado, this world is messed up. It's broken. It's broken. So when you, when you suffer adversity, whether that's, that's physical ailment or, or, or difficulties or, or whether it's relational difficulties or whether it's economic difficulties, whatever it is, Rejoice in the reality that God is giving you a gentle reminder that the kingdom's not here yet. It is not here yet. Four, save for the future, but live in the present. Save for the future, but live in the present. What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is do not put your hope in your retirement account. I guess I don't need to say it anymore. You know, don't put your hope in your home equity. You know, we sort of were reminded about that, weren't we? Right? There was a time when my house made more money in a year than I did. Something was wrong. Something was wrong. But save for the future. The Bible tells us that. That's prudent. But, but live for today. Don't, don't continue to, to, to put it all out to the future someday. I mean, you may well suffer poor health. You may well drop dead of a heart attack and leave it all to a foolish son. Five, take risks for God. Take risks for God so that that you can become aware of His grace and your need for it. I mean, think about it this way. If If we're just aliens and strangers and pilgrims passing through, if this life is not you know, the, the be-all and the end-all, then what do we got to lose? What do we have to lose by, by taking risks now in this life? Because the future has already been assured to us, hasn't it? So what's the worst that can happen now? But yet we, we play it all so close to the vest. We're all, you know, ugh, conservative. Take big risks for God. Then you'll understand how dependent upon him you really are. Six, 
Develop an attitude of gratitude. Thank, thank God regularly for the routine things in life. I love hearing people pray, and I don't remember who I first heard pray this, but it was somebody here at Foothill. They were praying for food, and, and they were just sort of going on about the food and God's provision, and I was just agreeing with them in prayer. And then they went on, and they said, they thank you, God, that you made food that doesn't taste like dirt. You know, because you could have made food that's nutritious but tastes like dirt. And they finished their prayer. You know, we enjoyed our meal. And I was thinking about that later. I thought, you know, yeah, that's right. You know, or at least he could have made it taste like dog food or something, you know? I mean, think about that. The dog gets the same food every day. And I tried it. It doesn't taste very good. You know, so God provides for you, but He provides with such variety and, and texture and taste and color and smell and what a good God we serve. So just, be, just develop that thankful spirit. Take the time to thank God. Count your blessings. Name them one by one, right? Seven. Finally, give generously of your possessions. Give generously of your possessions. You know, I was sticking back to the words of the, in the Proverbs, Proverbs 30. Oh, God, don't, don't let me be too wealthy or I might forget you. And God, don't let me be too poor or I might be tempted to steal. Give. Give and, and so that you can, you can sort of mitigate that, that likelihood of, of temptation to forget about God. You're looking at me like, this guy has lost it. David, you have been out in the hot sun way too long. Give it away? What Are you crazy? Yeah, I think I am, actually. I mean, if the kingdom's coming, what are we risking? What are we risking? You know what's crazy in the book of Acts? This is... Uh, those of you who get my sermon notes, you know this guy, he's gone off his manuscript. This is not in there. Warning, warning, you're losing altitude. <laughs> right, pull up, pull up. Acts chapter 2, verse 43 in the end of the chapter, it says, um, this is right at Pentecost, right? 3,000 converted, boom, at Pentecost. Everyone keep feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had, had believed were together and had all things in common, and they began selling their property and possessions, and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day to day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Some read this and they say, yeah, see, right there, uh, Marxism was in the early church, right? They sold their stuff and they shared it. No. No, you know why they sold their stuff? You know why they sold their property? Let Let me just tell you this. They sold their property with abandon because they believed the kingdom of God was going to come at any moment. And when the kingdom of God comes, the land is given back properly to the tribes and the families. That's what the Old Testament prophets say. That God undoes all of the, uh, the inequalities that have built up over the centuries. And the people get it back. 
So for them, they're so convinced Jesus is going to return and is going to establish his kingdom soon that they're saying, this is, a, this is the best deal going. I sell it. I get the proceeds. I give the proceeds to my brothers and sisters in Christ. And Jesus returns, and we get it all back anyway. Crazy, huh? Crazy. Jesus didn't return. But in less than three decades, the Romans destroyed Jerusalem, and they lost all that property anyway. It was all gone. Beloved, there's no trailer hitch on the back of a hearse. There's no pockets in a funeral shroud. But we hang on tight. We hold it so tight. Give us this day our daily bread. May God grant us faith to see things as they really are. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you that your word speaks to our hearts through your spirit to confront us where we are, to encourage us in our time of need, to admonish us in our rebellion, to exhort us to faith and obedience. And Father, this is a big area for all of us. So hard to get our arms around this. We, we read the, this statement, give us this day our daily bread, and, and we just have such a hard time relating to it. Our Father, may you enable us to live according to the reality that we are dependent upon you for all things. And let us live that way until Jesus returns. Your kingdom comes. Amen. God bless you, beloved.